Well, this is for many people the main event in, the, in Revelation. It's the, it's the passage on the millennium from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. These six difficult verses present us with the idea of the millennium. Millennium just means thousand-year reign. The text refers to the thousand-year reign of the saints. And now this is the only place in Scripture, the only place which mentions this thousand-year reign. And so that means that we're going to need to allow the teaching of the rest of Scripture and the rest of the book of Revelation to illumine what is difficult here. Right? It's a fundamental principle of interpreting Scripture that we have to allow the hard passages to be interpreted in light of the easy passages. Or we have to allow the passages which are less clear to be seen in light of those that are more clear. And so we'll certainly have to do that here today. We will make three points. They're there on your outline. The context, and then the binding of Satan, and the reign of the saints. So first then, the context. So there's a question we need to ask, and that is, how does this passage function in the flow of the book? What is its basic purpose? That's sort of the first question. And the second question, which is related to it, is how, how does it fit chronologically with the last battle, which we looked at last week, At the end of chapter 19. So I'll begin with the second question first. How does this passage fit with the end, which was already depicted last week at the end of chapter 19? Now, this last battle, this last great conflict, is depicted first first in chapter 16. And then that battle is narrated at great length in chapter 17 and 18. And all of that focused on the fall of Babylon. We've already been through that. The battle is then re-narrated in chapter 19, where the beast and the false prophet are judged. We looked at that last week. And this is important to get. Finally, you're going to see this last battle again. In chapter 20, just after, after this text, where Satan is destroyed. And so we argued last week, and we've been arguing throughout this series that these are clearly three depictions of the same battle. They all involve a kind of demonically inspired assembling of all the kings of the earth for this final judgment. We've said this before, but it's important to be reminded of it. So when we come to today's text, we notice that it's situated between the final battle which we looked at last week, in chapter 19, and a final battle which follows immediately after this in chapter 20. Now you might say, okay, what does that mean? Well, one of the things it means, and this goes to a principle that we've been articulating throughout this series, which is form and content go together in the book of Revelation. It's very important to spend time with big chunks broad swaths and sweeps of the book to see what John's doing. Otherwise, you just end up with enigmatic passages and you're like, what is this? But John 
John is a very coherent, wide-angle, structural kind of thinker. So you have to locate a text on the map. And what I'm trying to say here is that this text then functions a lot like an interlude. It functions a lot like an interlude. And there, there have been other interludes in the book. And like the other interludes in the book, what this text is doing is it is depicting the victory of the church. The state of the church underneath the main events of the church's protagonists and their judgments. And so we have then an answer to our first question. How does this text function in the flow of the book? It functions as an assurance of the vindication of the church, especially the martyrs, in contrast to the judgments on her oppressors. That's what all the interludes in the book of Revelation do, right? The seals had an interlude, the trumpets had an interlude, and we have an interlude here. That's John's big picture point here, and it's kind of a shame that the text has suffered such a tortured history that this big picture is missed. This is a text about comforting the church. And so when we situate the text this way, Remember, the text is between two parallel descriptions of the final judgment. This means that the text does not follow sequentially upon the coming of Christ in the final judgment. Or at least it's highly unlikely that it does. And it is certainly unnecessary to read the text that way. One of the reasons for asserting this is that As I mentioned, the text is followed by yet another depiction of the nations assembled for a final battle. And so as an interlude, the text has to be referring to realities which exist prior to the final battle, or at least in contrast to the final battle. Now that's a lot, I know, but getting this right will affect the way we interpret the text. If you just pull this text out and read it, you can get any number of millennial views. The first question to be asked is, what is this text doing and what is it doing right here? So with that context, I want to turn to the second point, and that's the binding of Satan. So chapter 20, verse 1, John sees an angel with the key to the abyss and a great chain. He seizes Satan. And note this because it's important. Satan is described in precisely, I mean precisely, the same fourfold manner that John describes him in in chapter 12. He's called, one, the dragon, two, the ancient serpent, three, the one who is called the devil, four, Satan. That exact fourfold description links this passage closely to the realities of chapter 12. And this is part of what I mean about reading the book of Revelation. Because John is constantly echoing back and telling you in a literary way, hey, I'm doing roughly the same thing I did in chapter 12. Now, we're going to come back to that. But remember for now that the passage is linked to chapter 12. And the text goes on to say that this, this angel bound Satan for a thousand years. Now, we've gone over these numbers in Revelation. Hopefully, this is not a surprise to most of us. Right? A thousand years is a symbolic number. It just means a long time. Again, this is a scriptural conclusion, right? We know this from Scripture. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Again, that does not mean that when you get to the one thousand and first hill, 
those cattle are owned by somebody else. Thousand is just a number, meaning essentially really, really wide expanse. Right? In the Song of Songs, the one lover says to the other, your love to me is better than a thousand rivers of oil. So, the text, will, uh, the text of Scripture says that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. Or a thousand years is like a day. So, we're going to see that this thousand years, symbolic number, refers to the church's whole historical existence. So, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my conclusion right there, for those of you who are tuned into this sort of millennial uh, stuff. But, verse 3 adds some key additional information. Having been bound, Satan is thrown into this abyss. This pit is sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. Okay, so this is really a big question on the millennium right here. What is this binding? When and how does it take place? What is this binding of Satan? When does it take place? How does it take place? Well, the context has already indicated that it takes place before, not after the final battle. But if we're not convinced by the context I laid out, the rest of the New Testament makes this very clear. And this is one of those places where that principle, the unclear text have to be seen in light of the clear text, should come into play. In the New Testament, Jesus expressly says, for example, in Matthew, that he came that he entered the house of the strong man, that he bound the strong man, and that he, is, that he bound the strong man. Get that? Jesus says in his earthly ministry, he bound the serpent. And he's plundering his house. Jesus also says that I saw Satan fall like lightning as a result of his earthly ministry. Colossians says, tells us that in his cross, Jesus, Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers, and he stripped them, or he disarmed them, and made a public spectacle of them. That word for public spectacle is taken from the ancient Roman world's idea of a king parading chained prisoners into town after he's conquered. It's a binding word. John 12 says that with the work of the cross, the ruler of this world is cast out. Right? There is no doubt from the rest of the New Testament when this binding occurs. And this is confirmed by the fact that the key, the key here to the bottomless abyss, you know, the bottomless pit, the abyss which the angel has, is surely the same reality as the keys of hell and death which the transfigured risen Christ has in his hands in chapter 1. So, all of that, let's confirm it even further. There's a connection, we said, clearly between this text and chapter 12. And what was going on in chapter 12 was that the birth and the life and the death and resurrection, the ascension of Christ, led to Satan being cast out of heaven. Right? This is not a second coming event. This is an event associated with Jesus' first appearance. He was disbarred. He was stripped of his credentials. He no longer can accuse the saints in the heavenly court. So, the binding of Satan took place in the ministry of Jesus Christ. There is, I think, no doubt about this in the New Testament. 
And as a result, the church is protected from his onslaughts. Now, there's almost, in, in, in the millennial man, mania that gets spoken about in the broader church out there, you know, you're going to get some sort of other interpretation. But what is missed here is that what has happened in the gospel is that Satan's been definitively bound. This binding does not restrict all his activities, but it's decisive and it has a distinct purpose. So I want to deal with an objection. You might say, well, the text here in Revelation 20 sure sounds like a total binding. After all, the text speaks of him being shut and sealed in a pit so that he might deceive the nations no longer. So let's address this apparent problem. Leave aside the fact that I just deduced a whole bunch of evidence from the New Testament that Jesus says he bound Satan in his ministry. I think that should be sufficient for us, but I could still understand how someone might look at this text and say, maybe there's something more going on here. So there are two things to say here. Notice that the text says he's bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That is, he cannot hold sway over the nations as he did prior to the coming of Christ. All the Gentile nations, and even to a great extent Israel, were smothered in darkness before the coming of Christ. But Christ has come to bring light and liberty to the darkened and to the enslaved nations. Prior to the coming of Christ, the nations, Acts 14 tells us this, went their own way in ignorance, but now the gospel summons them to repentance. So that Satan cannot deceive the nations any longer, anymore, means he cannot spread the light of the gospel. And the second part of this answer as to the, the, the nature, the extent of this binding, it's found in the phrase, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So right after the text, what happens? Satan's released from prison, He goes out and deceives the nations at the four corners of the earth to gather them for the final battle. Again, the same final battle is being depicted. And this means that the primary force of his binding is this. He cannot deceive the nations, and particularly, he cannot deceive the nations to gather them against the church for the final battle. That's what this binding accomplishes. He's under God's sovereignty and his restraints. He cannot precipitate the events of the end. So, let me summarize this. I'm going to summarize this material. I think we want to say this. The binding begins with the ministry of Christ. It allows the light of the gospel to be poured out on all the nations previously in darkness. It protects the church from satanic assault, and specifically it prohibits Satan from gathering the nations for a final assault until the thousand years, that is the end of the church age, is over. Okay, so the third point then is the reign of the saints. John, as he saw back in chapter 4 in heaven, he sees thrones. There's some argument, of course, there's a lot of arguments on this passage about where these thrones are. I think it's clear that the thrones are in heaven. For one thing, and we heard this in the Old Testament lesson this morning, this passage is drawing heavily in in various echoes from Daniel chapter 7, 
where the ascended Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and sees an array of thrones in heaven. So anyway, John sees these thrones, and seated on these thrones are those to whom authority to judge has been given. Remember, now this ties us all the way back to the beginning. You go back to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, right? The church, the faithful, was promised that if they overcame, they would share in Christ's throne, which is, of course, a heavenly throne. John further describes how he sees those occupying these thrones. The souls of those who have been beheaded or martyred for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. But these thrones are almost certainly not just for the martyrs, although the martyrs are being emphasized here, but for all the faithful. The text sort of widens out. It says, and, sometimes your English Bible doesn't have this and, but and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or received his mark on their foreheads and hands. So martyrs are primarily in view, but all those who have not capitulated to the beast. So what is this scene? Remember, if this text is an interlude, we can expect it to be like other interludes. And this scene is very much like the scene which we've appealed to a lot in this series in chapter 6, where the souls of the martyrs are in heaven crying for vindication, and they're given a white robe of conquest and told to rest. So what John is doing is he's seeing the church, especially the martyrs, triumphant in heaven during the age of the church, the thousand years. That's what he sees. And at the end of verse 5, the text says they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5 says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This, the text continues, this coming to life, with, to reign with Christ, this is the first resurrection. So we're going to have to talk about this a little bit as well. Um, we've already asserted here that the ones on thrones are martyrs and the faithful reigning in heaven with Christ during, the, during history, during the age of the church. Thus, the first resurrection must be spiritual in nature. The first resurrection must be spiritual in nature. Now, it's often objected that this is unnatural. For the second resurrection, the coming of the dead to life, the rest of the dead, after the thousand years, all agree that that's a bodily resurrection. How can the resurrection of the saints be spiritual and the resurrection of the rest be physical in the very same context? I know this is perhaps... Maybe not on everyone's radar here, but if you're tuned into these millennial debates, this is a crux question. But it's not really a problem. The gospel lesson this morning from John 5, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Spiritual resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming... And is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Spiritual resurrection. Next verse. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Bodily resurrection. 
There you have it. Spiritual resurrection and bodily resurrection, side by side, in the same context, from the lips of Jesus, in the gospel, written by the writer of the book of Revelation. The gospel of John. So, two more points confirm that this resurrection, the saints coming to life, is spiritual. First... And again, this goes to this basic principle, the testimony of all the rest of Scripture. All the rest of Scripture, not to mention the creeds of the church, is that there is one general resurrection of believers and unbelievers, and it occurs at the end of the age. This is a sort of marker of orthodoxy. There's one general, you know, we await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, amen. You can find this in the passage from John, which I just cited. Jesus says there's an hour coming when all who are in the tomb will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who did good to to this destiny, those who did evil to that destiny. That's one general resurrection of all peoples at the end of the age. That same idea is in Daniel 12. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. And strikingly, now this is important, this doctrine of one general resurrection appears right here in Revelation 20, right after this text. Right, just We'll look at this Lord willing next week, but just after this text, the next scene in the book of Revelation is the sea giving up the dead and death and Hades giving up the dead that are in them so that all the dead, John says, great and small, may stand before the great white throne judgment. Therefore, what is in view in this text today is not the bodily resurrection, but the spiritual resurrection of the faithful. Even this chapter of Revelation asserts that there's one general resurrection, then the final judgment. So, when verse 5 speaks of the rest of the dead coming to life, it's speaking of the general resurrection of all people at the end of the age. So, the second point which confirms that this coming to life and reigning with Christ is spiritual in nature is as follows... Notice what it's called in verse 6. It's called the first resurrection. And verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So notice this. The the first resurrection immunizes you from the second death. So John's doing a little... A little numbers game here. The first resurrection, when you spiritually believe in Christ and you're quickened, when you're born again, that's the first resurrection. That means you will not be condemned and damned. The first resurrection protects you from the second death. The second resurrection, when your body is raised, that destroys the first death, which is physical death. See, So he's doing the first resurrection, immunizes you from the second death. The second bodily resurrection immunizes you from the first bodily death. So this confirms our point. We know from later in this chapter that the second death, while it's enacted on embodied people, the second death is spiritual in nature. The second death is the lake of fire. The first resurrection saves you from the eternal judgment. The first resurrection answers the problem of spiritual death. And thus the first resurrection, rooted in Christ's resurrection, and you're being joined to him, as Ephesians 2 puts it, the first resurrection is John's way of saying he sees the souls of the martyred and faithfully departed saints already reigning with Christ in heaven during the age of the church. And so the text concludes, they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him 
for a thousand years. But again, this is already a reality. Revelation has already told us that we're already priests and kings, that the church is already a triumphant heavenly company. This is a reality which exists for all believers, and John sees it in an escalated way here for the departed. It's true, it's true this rain won't be consummated until the new heavens and new earth descend, but it's already begun. And so, it's a dense passage, I understand. And as I said, it's a passage which has suffered an incredibly tortured history. But I'm convinced a lot of it can be untangled if we just take the rest of the New Testament seriously in interpreting the binding of Satan, the first resurrection, and when is it that the saints become priests and reign with Christ. If we get those things right, the passage is not that difficult. And more than that, and this is important, if you, if you don't get all these details, that's okay. Please get this. This is actually a word of consolation. Right? It's actually a word of comfort. You have a faithful loved one or a friend or a family member who has died. This text is to say that they are to be depicted, you are to imagine them and to envision them now seated on thrones reigning with Christ in heaven. It's a way of depicting faithful believers, especially martyrs, but not only martyrs. They're kings and they're priests and they have a kind of escalated um, relationship with Christ in heaven on thrones in a way that they anticipate the coming authority and reign of the saints with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. They have gone ahead of you. They are not behind you. Right? Paul says to the Thessalonians, who had seen Christians die and were confused. First Thessalonians is, is almost certainly the first book written in the New Testament. It's very early. And so the the congregation didn't understand a lot of things, and Christians were dying, and Jesus had not come back, and the church did not understand the fate of these Christians, what was happening. And and Paul tells them there in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Christ will appear and he will bring, essentially he uses words that mean this, he will bring your loved ones with him, and you will have a reunion with him. And then he says to the Thessalonians, comfort one another with these words. Like he doesn't say wrangle about the details. Like these words are here so you can wrangle about the eschatological details. You no longer need to do that, beloved. You know why? Because I just gave you the right interpretation. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just a little bit. But, but, but even if you disagree with me, the text is not for wrangling. It's for comfort, right? The Syrian martyrs and the Chinese martyrs, right? And and the historical martyrs and the martyrs under the Soviet Union and your faithful loved ones. That's what the text is saying. And the text is also a text for confidence. Satan has been bound. And for all the suffering he can have, you know, still inflict, he remains under the sovereign control of the Lord. He cannot deceive the nations as he once did. You should read Athanasius, the great 4th century church father on this. You know, he, it's, it's, it's probably more vivid to him than it is to us. But Athanasius has this long tract where he says, 
you know, once the nations were enslaved to idols, smothered in darkness, then Christ appeared and we see the idols being fallen everywhere. It's difficult sometimes for us to get this right because we live in the West at the end of a longer history and we live in a period of, in my opinion, Christian decline around the world. But if you go back and you see the big picture, when Christ appears, he binds Satan and Satan can no longer destroy the church. And so this passage assures you that even when demonic powers and beasts and false prophets ravage the church, they're doing nothing more than establishing the faithful that they assault and kill in positions of heavenly glory and reign and power. Right? That is what is happening. And so John is saying in this text, admittedly a difficult text, But the nub of it is you have an indestructible gospel. And the indestructible gospel creates an indestructible people who, though they have died, yet they live. And they even now reign with Christ on his throne. Praise be to God. Amen.